And so I spend a lot of time trying to understand how this will work. And a lot of those systems of organizational politics or office politics, as commonly called, that backstabbing, manipulation, sort of, you know, all of that cajoling to try and get your way and work around those formal systems that sit there. Workplaces sold this idea that that's how it works. And yes, in the 1950s, in a transactional command and control workplace where you go to work, you just sit down, you do your little job, you do your tasks, you go home, maybe that worked for a select few individuals. But in the world of work today, where organizational structures are a lot flatter, where we're getting rid of mid-level managers, where 83% of us have to work with other people in order to do our job, you cannot afford to engage in those behaviors, right? We've got to think about how we manage work. Of course, the world of work has changed since the 1950s. What's bigger news is that it has changed since 2020. How we do our work today is dramatically different than it was prior to the pandemic. Yeah, work, like culture, is dynamic. And there's no reason to expect that the dynamics of work have somehow decided to stop changing now that we're here in September of 2023. Hell no. (laughs) Work is ever-changing. One thing that is likely to stick around are core elements of human nature, like relying on networks of other people to help us accomplish things. And the best way to do that is if you're paying attention to those informal networks and the people in them. Yeah. And you can do that in a really cool way, too. It's like reading the air. Welcome to Behavior Groups, the podcast that explores our human condition with a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We talk with researchers and authors and other interesting people to unlock the mysteries of our human condition. And we do it to help you find your groove. In this episode, we had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Michelle King. Dr. King is a globally recognized expert on inequality and organizational culture. She is also the host of a popular podcast called The Fix. Her new book, How Work Works, The Subtle Science of Getting Ahead Without Losing Yourself, is based on over a decade's worth of her research. Michelle believes that we need to learn how workplaces work with the purpose of figuring out how we can make them work for everyone. And she comes to this conversation with five. Count them, five. Five, five. whoa, yeah. Five degrees and is currently doing postdoc work at the UK. Obviously an underachiever. <laughs> <laughs> and on top of being very scholarly, she's got a lot to say about this. And in addition to being a researcher and author, She is a senior advisor to the UN Foundation's Girl Up campaign, enabling young women to navigate and overcome the barriers to their success. Much of that effort has been dedicated on accelerating gender inequality and women's empowerment. And with all that, we are excited to share our conversation with you. Yeah, we are. And and you can expect to hear more about the research she's done to understand how the workplace has changed and how to embrace and leverage those changes. And we're also going to spend some time on informal networks and how reflecting on work and writing our reflections down can help us cultivate a more successful career. Another topic we're going to cover is the role that ambiguity plays in our world. Now, we know that our world is filled with uncertainty, But what Michelle advocates is that we need to be able to manage it and learn how to live with a little less closure. And lastly, we're going to hear a lot about a very cool concept Michelle calls reading the air. And by the way, 
You may think that this discussion is for people who are just getting started in their careers, and it is for them. However, it is also for anyone who wants to navigate their career better by taking on some new skills like reading the air. You're doing that on purpose, aren't you? You told me to, so yes. (laughs) Okay, with that, Groovers, we invite you to sit back with a two-fingered pour of informal networks and enjoy our conversation with Michelle King. Michelle King, welcome to Behavioral Groups. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's just really great to have you here. And we have to know, do you prefer coffee or tea? Coffee. Absolutely coffee. Coffee every day of the week. I'm a a complete addict and I hate to admit it, a complete snob. I love love good coffee. Bring it on. what's What's your coffee snobbery about? It's, it's just, it's got to be the right, like, I think because my parents used to own a coffee shop and I worked in a coffee shop from the age of 13 and have learned how to make proper coffee, you can taste it. So if you have years of coffee drinking, you can just taste it, the beans, the milk, how it's put together, it all really matters. So, yeah. And, and how is that going being in London right now, which is more of a tea drinking uh, world? Are, are you finding decent coffee there? Well, I find actually London, they drink more coffee now than tea. It's the number one drink. So what? Oh, my gosh. You, all right. Right there. We, we've you already we've blown my mind. And I, we can, well, we can. I blame all the Antipodeans for any Americans who don't know what that means. Anybody, um, you know, like from Australia or New Zealand or South Africa who brought their coffee drinking culture to the UK. Um, and we have a lot of Antipodeans who live here. And so that's why you've seen this massive rise of coffee, really good coffee as well, like amazing coffee. Well, good to know. Good to know. So um, next time I'm in London, I'm going to not have to just feel like I'm obligated to, to get tea. I can actually go and find some decent coffee out there. All right. Second speed. Notice our speed round questions aren't very speedy. So that's, that's quite, quite how we go here. All right. So second speed round question. Would you rather have dinner with your favorite actor or favorite musician? Favorite musician? Oh, you just you just won over Tim. What? There you go. <laughs> what? Uh, and anyone come to mind? Uh, Leonard Cohen, I think. Oh, oh. Yes. <sighs> there you go. Yeah. Pull him back from the dead. But that's all right. yeah. yeah, I could have a whole dinner conversation with Leonard Cohen just about Bird on a Wire or Suzanne, or actually pick just about any song. But just like, yeah, I could have just have him talk for two hours just about. One song, uh, okay. But yeah. that's uh, any any favorite Leonard Cohen songs. By the way, does anything come to mind? Uh, this this is not uh, a test. I, I feel like it might be. No, look, I like them all. I've got. I also have quite a few Leonard Cohen books as well. Oh, so, and mm-hmm, poetry. So yeah, it's a big fan. He is a remarkable. He was a remarkable writer. That's for sure. Okay. Uh, next speed round question: Is it possible to get ahead, or actually really progress in your career? without tapping into the informal networks of your company culture? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I, like the, I like the little pause oh, that there. Was very, Absolutely yeah. not. Very that. dramatic. Like there's only one answer here, Keith. Um, <laughs> I can dive into why that is if you like. But, uh, yeah, we'll, no, get, we'll get we'll there. Get there. We have one more, <laughs> one more speed round question, which again, I think you'll probably will dig into later as we go along here. Um, 
is a sense of belonging important to work or can we just go it alone and just be a solo person out there trugging away without feeling belonging of any sense? So it's not just important to workplaces. It's actually essential to to you, to fulfilling your needs. Yeah. 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 Okay. We're going to spend more time on that as well. But and I'm holding back, team. I'm holding back. <laughs> You're doing a great job. You're doing a great job on speed round questions. <laughs> yeah. This is great. It's like, oh, I yeah. could answer that for a we could have that two-hour Leonard Cohen talk here, um, but we're we're holding back. All right. Well, I, I wish I wish our listeners could see sort of the anticipation in your face too. <laughs> it's, 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 it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. It, it's great. Yeah. Uh, okay, we are here, Michelle, to talk about your latest book, How Work Works, and it appears that you've kind of laid out a guidebook for how to get ahead in the world. Maybe could you just start by telling us who is the primary reader of, of your book? Like, did you orient this towards? Anybody in the workforce, or is it really like okay, you're you're new to to work, you're you're new to your career, you should really you should get this advice, you know, early on. So you know, you probably think with a book like this, surely it must be people who just kind of entered the workplace or who sort of at managerial level and below. That's actually not true. So I've had a lot of people, even in senior positions, read the book and be like, you know, I really didn't know that oh, wow, I really need to think about that, particularly when it comes to advancement or informal networking. So I think it's a book for everybody. I would say in particular, if you're starting out, obviously it's a great roadmap, but I think um, if you've lost your way a bit and you hate your job, hate your boss, <laughs> your coworkers, want to quit, this is a good book for, for how to get back your your kind of mojo around work. Did you have that in mind when, when you were writing the book? Were you thinking... I want to make sure that this does apply to people across the entire spectrum. Um, I, I mean, I always try and write for the broadest audience possible, but I know this is going to sound strange. I also write a book that I want to read. Yeah. So I write a book that I'm a researcher, right? So I have a very specific research problem and I write it. And for me, I think that sort of separates me from other authors a little bit because I'm sharing what I'm finding as I'm researching it. That's literally the point of my, the books that I write, they're almost in a way documenting what I find when I find it. It's my way to share that with people. But my hope is that people start to see themselves and see each other in the book and realize, you know, we are our workplaces. Yeah. Let's go back to one of those speed round questions that we talked about, this idea of tapping into informal networks in the company culture and why that's important. Can you talk a little bit, you talked a lot about, um, Obviously, the, the networks and the connections that people have and how important that is. But can you talk about the informal networks even a little bit more uh, and, and explain why that's so important? Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important for anyone listening to this to understand, firstly, what do we mean by informal networks, right? So typically when we think of networking, unless you're very extroverted, you're probably going to sort of cringe a little bit because you're going to conjure up images of going to some weird cocktail party and handing out your business card, right, and talking to strangers. That's not what I mean by informal networking. So if you want to know sort of who's in your informal network, those are sort of informal relationships you have at work outside of an organizational hierarchy. And generally it includes three things. So people who give you access to information that helps you do your job, people who give you advice, and people who give you what we call social support, so Mm -hmm. emotional 
poor social support when you're struggling. So if you were to write a list of anybody at work who maybe helps you with that, and we'll talk inside workplaces, obviously you can have an informal network outside of workplaces, that would be your informal network. Now, I think one of the challenges for a lot of people is they often don't invest in their informal network in a very thoughtful way. So how many people have even sat down and mapped out, you know, who's in my informal network? And what am I generally going to these people for? Of course, there's some people you might get information and social support, but typically you go to people for one of those three things more than more than the others. And I think without knowing who's in our network, we also then aren't really aware of how we're building and maintaining that network. The studies show generally you need one person who gives you access to information, one person who gives you advice, and at least two people who provide social support. Mm. Now, the reason all of this matters, if you're sitting there listening to thinking, why should I care, Michelle, is because 70% of all jobs come through the informal network. So if you're somebody who's thinking, hey, my next job, I'm just going to apply to LinkedIn, I'm here to tell you that is not a good strategy. 80% of jobs are not advertised. And 70% of job placements come through informal networks. So what it looks like is your manager has a job. Sure, they might advertise it, but he's going to know somebody or she's going to know somebody or they're going to know somebody they want to call up and say, would you like to apply? We'll put you through the process. Right. So that's just how it happens, whether we like it or not. So informal networks give you access to it. I think the tricky thing is knowing how you manage them. And I can also, you know, go into that a, a bit more and, and some advice on, on how to manage it. But I think the first thing is just getting clear on who's in your network. Yeah, I think let's go into how to manage that, because I think that's an important aspect of the book in particular. But I think it's also really good for our listeners just to go, all right, so I understand now what an informal network is, but how do I cultivate that? What do I need to do? Yeah, so look, I think one of the challenges for listeners is often, they, you know, when we think of informal networks, there'll be people who, like me, so I'm a white woman, just for, for anyone who's listening, um, you will know instantly, you know, you'll probably have heard of the boys club, the old boys club, you'll be thinking informal networks tend to exclude people. Now, that's absolutely true in the sort of old world of work. But in my book, I share a lot of the changes that have happened to workplaces and how we're actually in the new world of work now, where arguably one of the very worst things you can do is have an informal network that's only made up of people who look like you or share your background. So research looking at sort of what creates sort of a, what are some of the characteristics of high performers in organizations, what they find is your top 20% of high performers have diversified networks right? And they actively manage those networks. And the reason that matters is we work in organizations that are increasingly becoming demographically diverse. So if you want to maintain your employability, if you want to have access, you need to diversify your network. So I want people to go back into their list, right, that they've already written up and have a look at the list of people and think about, are those people more similar to me or more different from me? If your network is very similar to you, and if you're a white male, you need to listen up because it's quite likely it is, you need to think about how you're investing in getting to know people who don't share your background because this matters for your future, right, in terms of your access to jobs. The second thing I want people to think about is how beneficial are these relationships? So you, you have limited time, energy, and resources to invest in relationships at work. You've got to make sure those relationships are mutually beneficial. What do I mean by that? I mean somebody who has your best interests at heart. Mutually beneficial relationships are relationships where you can disagree, where you can share your ideas, and where you can share positive and negative feelings, right? 
And often in workplaces, we're very good at going, yep, that person's got my back. I know they'll support me. They'll give me access to information, advice or support. Nope, that person doesn't support me. So we're good at sort of the binary there. What we're not good at is understanding people are in the middle. Mm. So what we call ambiguous relationships. And that matters because 90% of your anxiety at work comes from 5% of the people in your informal network. (laughs) Wow. So it's very important when you're looking at your informal network to be able to say, you know, quite literally, am I clear? Is this person worth investing or not? And if I'm still investing and they're not, why? And if it's ambiguous, does that make sense? Because it's probably going to cause me a lot of anxiety. And if you think about it, it makes sense. So if you're at work and you're, you know, you're struggling with this person trying to work out all the time, you're investing huge amounts of mental and emotional energy. So make sure you're investing in mutually beneficial relationships. The third thing I want people to think about is when you look at that list again, you want to have a really nice mix of people you're pretty close to and you see on a regular basis and then people where it's maybe a bit more informal, you meet on a sort of a, you know, not not so often, but when you meet, you might say hi. You don't necessarily have to have deep and meaningful. Those sort of more loose connections really matter when it comes to accessing job opportunities. So you're going to find you get a lot more access to information if you actually have quite a few loose informal acquaintances, connections in that way. And then I think, you know, you once you've got sort of those core aspects of your network, you've already started to look at what type of relationships you have, how you're investing in, and the nature of those relationships. So a mix of all of that is quite helpful. So if the consequences are so dire, really, so the, the impact is huge of having a, either a really well-developed or a really bad uh, informal network, why are we so bad at it? I think one of the challenges is workplaces sort of sold us a lie. No one talks about true. So, you know, I mean, so just to back up a little bit, I wrote this book because 20 years ago I started the process of studying the informal side of working life because I noticed, and anyone listening to this is going to think of somebody now, I noticed in organizations there were people who didn't have the qualifications, didn't have the skill (laughs) sets, You know, really weren't qualified and consistently got promoted. And I wanted to understand, well, how does this happen? And in researching it, I realized, hey, companies can have all the formal policies and processes that they like. In fact, companies where it's even, you know, more formalized, those tend to be the more political workplaces because people have to work really hard to work around those policies and processes, right? They've got to engage in a lot of political behavior. And so I spend a lot of time trying to understand how this will work. And a lot of those systems of organizational politics or office politics, as commonly called, that backstabbing, manipulation, sort of, you know, all of that cajoling to try and get your way and work around those formal systems that sit there. Workplaces solve this idea that that's how it works. And yes, in the 1950s, in a transactional command and control workplace where you go to work, you just sit down, you do a little job, you do your tasks, you go home, maybe that worked for a select few individuals. But in the world of work today, where organizational structures are a lot flatter, where we're getting rid of mid-level managers, where 83% of us have to work with other people in order to do our job. You cannot afford to engage in those behaviors, right? We've got to think about how we manage work. So my message around this is how you work is actually, so how you collaborate, how you work with other people, how you include, how you interact with people and manage those relationships is more important than the tasks you undertake, what you do, because the how enables the what. So the world of work has changed. We have a lot of managers are still leading in that transactional way. 
and don't realize that the how is their job managing that, right? And so for all of us, we've got to learn to navigate in the how, and the how is the informal, right? So the book really shares four ways that, you know, we need to manage the informal, and I think it's recognizing that matters. And on networking, again, most people will think of LinkedIn. They'll think of formal networks that exist in their workplace. They won't think of actually this is informal. So the book tries to shed light on these invisible and formal practices and really share what you can do to manage them. Yeah, I think that's that's fantastic. And I love this concept of the how versus the why. And you, you, you stated that really eloquently in the book and going on there. I also, you start the book with this fantastic story about these quaking aspen trees and how they've talked, learned to talk with each other. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that, but then really talk about why you started the book and this element of connectivity and different pieces? Can you, can you expand on that a little bit? So I think one of the challenges is particularly in that transactional command and control world of work. I call it the 1950s world of work because that's when a lot of these ideas, the how workplaces work, were formed, right? And if you know Mad Men, the TV show, you think of Don Drake, a lot like that, right? And I think we've been sold this lie that, you know, one person's success has to cost somebody else, right? It's this win-lose game. And I share the story of how trees in a, in a forest are actually a system, a network, and how they are connected to one another. And, you know, there's some incredible scientific discoveries around how trees talk to one another, how they support one another, and how they actually share resources with one another. And I think, you know, to really explain that in many ways, people don't realize it, but the same is true when it comes to workplaces. So we actually need each other to succeed, right? And not just that, we need each other for meaning and fulfillment. So at the end of the book, you know, I share a lot of research on how we find meaning at work. So a lot of us, when we think of career success, you probably think in terms of salary or job titles, but actually research shows success is more about what you leave behind, right? Success, the root word for it, the Latin word for it means exodus, means how you exit a workplace, what you leave. And I think, you know, nine out of 10 of us would really give up earnings and as much as sort of what we might spend on a house, the 23% of our earnings on, um, in order to find greater meaning at work, we want meaning. But when we look at what gives us meaning, it's really about connections, it's about our relationships at work. And I think one of the challenges is when we treat workplaces in a transactional way, we forget that actually all of us want to make a contribution beyond our job. And it's that contribution that's what we leave behind that ultimately gives us meaning and fulfillment in our work. And one thing I just want to say is if you're wondering, well, why should I care about that? Next to sleeping, work is where you spend the most number of hours over your lifetime. As awful as that sounds, it's true. Work is a huge (laughs) part of your life. It is your life. So these people saying, you know, work's my life. What are you talking about? It's where you spend the most number of hours. So we have to think about how we make it meaningful. And I think that's an important point. Yeah, it doesn't have to be awful. Though, right? I mean, it doesn't have to be awful. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's kind of the thing. You know, uh, just I love this tree metaphor uh, that that you, uh, the story of of the um, the quaking aspens and and the, the tree story. I think really works really well, and I'm really glad that you played that out throughout the book, uh, at least occasionally. You also talked about how it's our collective survival. You said that much like a tree depends on its forest is determined by our ability to read the air. And then you brought up this fantastic uh, Japanese statement, which I'm not gonna try to read right now, (laughs) but about reading the air. 
why is reading the air so important? And and does this actually apply? Uh, is, is this bigger than just a, a U.S. thing or a Australian thing or a UK thing? Is it is it is this a, a big issue that I think world global corporations need to and global citizens need to deal with? Such a good point. I, I you know in the in the book just for the audience because you wouldn't have read this yet. But you know when we talk about how trees communicate with one another, we talk about the fact that they send signals and chemical signals through the air. Yeah. That's how trees know what's happening with other trees. And if one of them's in distress and they need to send sort of support to that tree, right? And this is my example of actually how workplaces work. So often you'll have a formal policy, you'll have a formal process, you'll have even formal communication. But what sits alongside that is the informal and being able to understand, you know, when somebody needs support, understand how you can support, understand, you know, the informal way in which workplaces work. And so what this looks like is in a lot of countries, people refer to it in different ways, right? So I've lived in countries like Syria, Libya, the Netherlands, and I've lived and worked everywhere. And you find in any country, they actually have a term for this. So in Japanese culture, it's called read the air, where you read the informal norms and behaviors people are engaging in. But in the UK, it's called read the unwritten rules. In America, I think sometimes I've heard to read the room, there might yep. be sort of other terms so every country it's slightly different but what it means is are you picking up and understanding you know what somebody's trying to tell you beyond just the words that they're using and I think it it really matters because it's our way to manage the impact our behavior has there's something that's quite insidious in workplaces around authenticity where there's this idea that you know I'm going to go to work and be myself and everybody just has to deal and you know that's me being authentic and that's key no like your job is to go to work and be your best self which means managing the impact your behavior has on others yeah it's it's so got lost but managing the impact your behavior has is not just you know demonstrating care to somebody but it's also a way to manage yourself like that is literally self-awareness do you see yourself versus how somebody else might interpret that behavior? And 90% of us lack self-awareness. So we've got this real gap in terms of understanding and reading how we, we're coming across, right? It, it's so interesting, Michelle. I was just uh, out with a client and we were talking about this very thing, this lack of self-awareness by many people we were talking with the leader of this this organization and she's dealing with a number of people and this lack of self-awareness of, of what they're asking and how they're asking it and the impact that that has. So I think it's a real issue. It's a real component that comes down to, she goes, they're, they're good at what they do, but man, the way that they're work, the, the, the how that they're working, right, is not the way that is going to move them ahead inside of the organization, which is, I think, is exactly what you're saying, if I haven't gotten that wrong. Yeah, so I mean, next to informal networks, I talk about this idea of informal information sharing, which is just my academic term for the kind of information you would get that would help you build self-awareness because self-awareness relies on feedback. Um, And generally what we find when it comes to self-awareness is 90% of us lack it, right? 90% of people actually aren't self-aware, so that's pretty much everyone. And you generally fall into one or two camps. So either someone who overestimates how good you are, or you're an underestimator. Now, if you're an underestimator, I've got great news for you. You can become self-aware with enough regular feedback and really looking for evidence to support some of your thoughts on how you're showing up and the impact that's having. 
But if you're an overestimator, research finds having one of those in your team can reduce your team's performance by 50%. (laughs) Wow. Oh, my gosh. That's an HBR study. So it's a lovely shocker, right? And the reason that is is we all know the competent jerks we work with, right, who are open to feedback, who don't care about the impact, and that can derail the morale and team. So your colleague is absolutely correct. Do not recommend people who fall into that category because it's going to have a detrimental impact. One thing about self-awareness, though, is it can be developed. So we know that actually the least self-aware people in organizations tend to be managers, tend to be CEOs. In academia, we call it the CEO disease because the higher up you go, the less access to quality feedback you get, less diversity of feedback you're getting, right, because people don't want to tell you the truth. So how can you even develop self-awareness if you're not even getting the feedback? So the first thing I want people to do is to think about are you taking time to reflect? Because one study found if you take 10 days and for 15 minutes, one five every day you sit down and reflect on three things what went well what didn't go well what could I do differently just those three questions you will increase your self-awareness by about 23 percent within 10 days now that doesn't sound a lot but you keep doing that over time you're going to see quite a big difference right and I still think 23 percent in 10 days is, is huge right for a dramatic change So all it takes is 15 minutes a day. And coupled with that, it's really important not to go down the rabbit hole of why questions. So studies show it's very important to ask what questions. So when you leave a, you know, presentation, you turn to your colleague, you say, what did you think worked well? What do you think I could have done differently? Great, thanks. Right? And you just stick to what, not why they're giving me that feedback. Why don't they like me? Why does my boss hate me? Why is it the end of the world? unhelpful questions so all of that helps to build self-awareness which is just so important i I love it Uh, it reminds me of a conversation we had recently that it's not just about practice 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 it's about practice reflect practice reflect uh and to have have that time to pull back and say well wait a minute how are things actually going am i doing what i ought to be doing or am i what what effect am i having i think I, i i love that i also i really love the the emphasis that you place on sort of the the nuance of messaging uh ambiguity you you talked about how ambiguity is really important to shape the future of of our career of work to be able to read the air right this is uh, this is really central to ambiguity and yet yet ambiguity the ability to deal with ambiguity is on the decline and you even put a name on it, the, the ambiguity paradox, which, by the way, thumbs up for a great name, ambiguity paradox. I just kind of love that. But, the band name, Jim, the band name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's why. Maybe that's why I like it. But um, what? Tell us about the ambiguity paradox, and what can we do about it? So this is going to be probably the most controversial thing I've shared so far, um, but I'm a researcher, so we state facts. The reality is younger generations actually have a harder time with ambiguity. So I, I just make it into the millennial category, so I'm going to go with that. So millennials and below have an, a really difficult time navigating ambiguity. So what is ambiguity? It's complex problems that don't have an obvious solution. It's having to do things without any clear direction. It's um, having to work in kind of new ways that have never been done before. So anything where it's unclear, we're not given, you know, very instructions, anything like that is, is ambiguous, right? And what one study found is that millennials and Gen Z in their survey, 70%, 70, 
perform below average on their ability to navigate ambiguity. And one of the reasons for this is that what we're finding, and I've just done a survey of 2,000 Gen Xs in the UK and the USA and found the same thing. So one of the reasons we're seeing a decline in our ability to navigate ambiguity is because of social media. So as counterintuitive as that feels, social media is actually a very obvious form of communication. There's very little nuance. So you want to date somebody, you go on to Tinder, and I don't know if you swipe left or swipe right, but whatever you do, that it's very obvious, right? Back in the day, you had to go to a bar, look across the room, try and pick up a social cue, you know, you had to do all of that, right? right? A lot harder. Right. And you then add into that, you know, all the very obvious forms of communicating and how much harder that is in a virtual setting where, I mean, even now during the podcast, I can't read each of you because I just see your your upper body. I don't see your context. I don't see the rest of your body language. I have to go off the tone in your voice very hard, right? And so what this looks like at work is you'll have a millennial working for, let's say, a baby boomer who might say, hey, it would be great if I could get that report on Tuesday. The boomer will say that to the millennial. The millennial will be thinking, well, at some point early next week, I can get that report. The boomer's thinking 5 p.m. Tuesday, that report better be on my desk, right? And so this is where managing ambiguity becomes difficult in workplace relations. So my study found that for millennials and below, 75% of their stress is directly attributable to the manager, right? So they're saying the number one most stressful thing for me that causes up to 75% of my stress is my line leader. So the reason for that is for me, I think, this. We're seeing it in decision making. We're seeing it in communication. So managers think they're being clear because they're, you know, being intimating what's happening. The other person being like, I don't really understand what you're saying. It's not explicit. So I think that's something to be aware of. And then also on the social side, social interactions are informal, are ambiguous, right? And if we're not great at picking up on that, it's going to cause us stress. So here's a shocking statistic from my study, which will be released in a, a week, I think. Nine out of 10 Gen Z um, participants, so that's 90%, said they actively avoid social situations at work because of social anxiety. Wow. They believe they have all the social skills they need to be effective at work, but they are actively avoiding interacting or engaging in social situations. So that is massive, right? So if we come back to what I said about the how mattering on the what, we've got a generation that's why I just want to focus on the what, I don't want to do the how. At a time where workplaces are actually less hierarchical, much more informal, a lot of studies call workplaces the hyper-social workplace, where 75% of your career success depends on social and emotional skills. Only 25 depends on technical skills. So what we have to do is really recognize, like, our ability to innovate, problem solve, collaborate, do our job requires that we work with other people. So this is why all of this matters. It's fascinating to think about the differences in generations and how we're approaching a number of these things, um, but also then that impact that that needs to have from leadership who might be of a different generation. So just as you're talking about, you know, the baby boomer working with that millennial and the, the misunderstanding, 
obviously there is a part of the millennial that needs to kind of think about this differently, but also more importantly, probably is the manager and how they are actually giving that communication, that direction to it. Have you found, because I, I see this in many organizations that, that I end up working with, is that there are times where the the situation itself is just ambiguous or uncertain, where the manager doesn't have the answer and the expectation from the workers is that you're in a leadership position, you should have the answer. H- how do you deal with those types of situations? Is there any advice that you could give? So I do think it actually is both parties. So yep. I do think I think one of the challenges is both parties are not aware. So coming back to self-awareness, both aren't aware this is a problem. So again, in my study, I found younger generations think they perform amazingly on social skills. And yet, <laughs> particularly, particularly grads, right? So they'll come in and be like, hey, we, we've got this down. And yet employers are saying this is the largest gap we're seeing. They don't have those skills that we need. So I think what it comes down to is first recognizing there is a problem. We do do this differently by and large, or we're viewing it differently. And then I think the second thing is over-indexing. So even if you don't have the answer, at least communicating, I don't have the answer. And here's when I may have a buy, or I'm doing everything I can to get it by this date. Or So for me, it's not good enough to have managers go, well, I, you know, it's, I just don't have the answer. I don't, because 75% of your mental health is directly attributable to your manager and 45% of your experiences of um, exclusion are also directly attributable to your line leader. So what we're finding is managers play a disproportionate role in terms of people's mental and emotional well-being and their feelings of inclusion. So if you are not actively managing employees' lived experience in your team, in your work environment, you're not doing your job as a manager. And I think leaders like to think, well, as long as they do my job right and do the performance reviews and do the pay access, that's kind of managing, isn't it? No, it's not. We have to actively manage how employees experiencing this work environment. What is it like to be a part of this team? Yeah. And if you don't know, ask. Yeah. Like this is kills me. Like if you're a manager, just ask to say, like, hey, am I being clear enough? You know, do you need more information? Is it clear when I need that by? Like, can you help tell me what you've heard? Like help me understand, you know, what I've communicated. If that's clear, can you play back what, what you think you've heard me ask for? Like if you're just not sure, ask. Yeah. You brought up belonging in that last part, and belonging is a big key component of your book. You talk about the five corporate myths of belonging. Um, and I don't want to necessarily get into all of them. It's, a, you know, belonging has always been available to everyone. To belong, you need to fit in. Belonging means to have a specific group of people to belong to. Four, as companies become more diverse, they also become more inclusive. And five, you don't need to belong to get ahead. I'm wondering, and I know this might be asking like if your favorite child, um, but uh, if one of these myths stands out to you as being the one that is more prevalent or the one that has the the, the worst myth uh, from an organizational perspective, is there one that kind of stands out uh, in your mind? I mean, I could rant about this topic forever, particularly in the context of all the backlash we're seeing around diversity and inclusion. I think um, the first thing I would say is like everybody universally wants belonging. So when yeah. we think about your core psychological needs, there's really three. People want freedom, like in academia call it autonomy, but it's really freedom, you know, freedom to make decisions, freedom over managing your work. People want to feel competent, like they know how to do their job and they've got the skills and they, they, they can do a good job. And then people want connection. And I think 
often, you know, if you adopt that, I'm just going to focus on what I'm doing, like screw my workplace, I don't care, I'm going to do the bare minimum, just come in and do my job. What you're missing is actually connection is a huge part of, you know, your satisfaction at work. So your ability to feel committed, engaged, happy, the likelihood you're going to stay with your employer all depend on connection and connection is belonging. You know, something as simple as being ignored when you walk down your hallway in your office can have a hugely detrimental impact on your mental and emotional well-being. And I think one of the challenges we've got is that, you know, there's a great 2020 McKinsey study has shown workplaces have become more diverse but less inclusive. So, yes, we're bringing in people who maybe typically don't fit the dominant groups in organizations, which is great because you get all the innovation, creativity, blah, 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 right? The problem is we're not valuing those differences and we're not creating environments where everybody can belong. We're focused on fitting in, fitting into the dominant group. And I think it, it creates a real challenge for why people just don't want to be there. And, you know, this whole push to go back into offices to think that's going to solve it, it is not. Like, yes, hybrid working can be culture eroding. It does come at a cost, but I believe it's here to stay. And I think we've got to get real about what those costs are and have managers who know how to manage hybrid environments. Mm. If you're a manager managing in a transactional way, not knowing how to build belonging in the office, there's absolutely no way you're going to know how to do that in a virtual environment. So I think my challenge is we have to really invest in leaders. Now, one of the interesting things about mid-level managers is research has found from now and over the next 10 years, those roles are slowly disappearing. So I was on a podcast the other day where the interviewer was like, no way, my husband's a mid-level manager and he works in an organization. They've just scrapped all those roles. So I was like, yes. <laughs> That's it. And it's because actually it's, a lot of teams are going to be self-managing, right? A lot of your peers are going to actually be giving you performance ratings. A lot of your peers are going to determine your pay. So belonging and connection and managing the informal is absolutely critical to this new world of work where it is more informal, it is flatter. And so in many ways, while we blame managers, I think what we have to realize is we're all leaders in our organization and increasingly that's going to be the case. I just have to make a note. I loved the part in the book when you talked about another one of my interesting paradox uh, stories is the diversity paradox that, that most companies really, they just aren't really valuing the differences. They're just tolerating it. And I, I think that that was, that was fantastic. I, I, we could spend an hour on that, but I want to get back to meaning. I want to get back to this idea of, of this personal meaning that we have. And I'm wondering, is some of this ameliorated by companies being more purpose-driven? Like, is it possible that as companies at least in my perception, I'm seeing a trend of companies becoming more purpose oriented. And I'm sure that it's influenced by the organization that I'm working for. But do you think that that actually helps bring more personal meaning to the workplace? So, I mean, I'm again, it's slightly controversial. I think that might have been the case back in the day. I don't think that's the case anymore. The reason I say that is, you know, Millennials are the hardest working generation, despite the stereotypes. They work the most number of hours during the working week, and the most number of millennials actually hold down two jobs. So increasingly what we're seeing is people don't just work for one employer, they work for multiple employers. They, they Really, it's not about a ladder with one organization that you climb up, right, until you die. Like, that's not what we're doing anymore. A lot of us have multiple jobs, multiple career paths, and so it's not about finding meaning with one employer. 
like that's that whole man on the moon thing, right, with NASA where you could go and ask a janitor, hey, what's your job? And he would say, I'm, or she would say, I'm putting a man on the moon, right? There would be the sense of meaning and in, in, in the greater purpose that they're fulfilling. That's not the case today. So the reality is for most people, it, it's not for your employer to give you meaning, it's for you to give you meaning. And how do you give yourself meaning beyond just the tasks you're undertaking? How do you feel like you've made a contribution? Well, as twee as this sounds, it's what the data says. It's all about paying it forward. So it's all about, we call it organizational citizenship behaviors in academia, but what we mean is, are you actively looking for ways to support your peers? Now, how do you do that in a way that's most meaningful? Well, it's the four things we talk about in the book. So it's thinking about my, who am I connecting with at work? Who am I sharing information with to help that person build self-awareness and give them helpful feedback? Who am I supporting with their informal development in terms of, again, helping this person learn, you know, maybe how to do something differently or coaching or supporting my peers? And then who am I advocating for in terms of their advancement and really helping make a case for that person to advance? So thinking about four different ways you can support them that matter most in organization. And the interesting thing about this, the reason it works as a system is let's say I informally connect with you, right, and in trying to diversify my network. And I, I do that with Tim. So I'll make an effort. I'll say, hey, Tim, do you want to get a coffee? It'd be great to learn, you know, about your new background. And Kurt, you watching me do that. Research finds not only is Tim going to pay it forward back to me and think, great, you know, Michelle, somebody's taken interest and now I'm going to pay it forward back to her because she's taken this time to connect with me. But Kurt is also going to do that. <laughs> for anyone observing somebody paying it forward. So you get the double whammy, right? And not only that, even if you two never pay it forward, Research finds I, just from the sheer act of reaching out, I'm going to feel more committed, engaged, satisfied in my job. Yeah. So this is where it's actually this perfect, perfect system. And that's how you derive meaning from, from your work. Michelle, you also talk about why statements in the book. Can you tell us why why statements are important? That was a weird way of saying that. It's really weird coming off my tongue. And then you also talk about uh, a method you use to help people find their why statements. And can you share a little bit of that? So, yeah, so this is around sort of career advancement and, you know, how you manage your career, right? And generally, there's three things in the literature. It's knowing who can advocate for your career, right? But it's also knowing why you're doing matters to you. So when I write a book, I'm trying to see if I've got one here. It's actually behind you both. So I'm now looking at it, how work works, and it literally says how work works intention. I will sit down and write the intention. I actually share it in the book. Yeah. So, and one way to do that is to ask why five times. A lot of people might be familiar of, of this idea from continuous improvement, but you say, look, I want to write a book that explains how workplaces work on the informal side. Well, why? And then you might give an answer and you ask why again, and you keep going. And all of those sentences sort of can come together in one paragraph and be a why statement. And I think it really matters in careers in particular where you're not tied to one employer. Mm. So I think a lot of people, you know, you're bigger than one job, you're bigger than one employer, and having a sense of what, you know, your employability is, what it is you're selling, what it is you're doing, what it is that's going to give you meaning matters. I mean, the amount of leaders I coach get to the end of their career and feel like they actually haven't contributed anything, feel like they've actually failed, even though they've made it to the top level, even though they earn a lot of salary, because they never really knew why they were doing what they were doing outside of just trying to impress everybody with their job title and pay. It's really sad. 
And I think, you know, having that why statement helps pull you through, particularly when things are challenging. So I encourage people to do that. I think it's one way to help manage your your career. Yeah, I, I love that idea of identifying the why for yourself, not just from the advancement piece, but just from that meaning, as you talked about, so that because again, you talk about the importance of meaning and, and you bring up all those great statistics about how much money I would give up if I could have a job with meaning in various different pieces. But I see many people where they, they, they don't have a clear understanding of what's important for them. And so by just going through an exercise to help identify what that is, I think that can be very very, very powerful. I, I know Tim is itching to get to, to music, but before we get to music, I do just want to, you bring up this really eloquent, actually throughout the book, you bring in a number of personal experiences and a variety of great things that I think are really wonderful from not just uh, helping people understand the concepts, but just kind of the story and the narrative itself. And one of those is uh, about your schooling and and coming up through primary school and the the experiences that you had some fantastic stories about the truck and the cabal that you uh, were driven just to, to work with. We won't go into those. I do want to talk, though, about your headmistress. And she wrote a statement in, in your yearbook at the end of your school year. And she talks about the winds that you face um, and, a, and a poem that was there. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? And then you bring up a really wonderful aspect that um, you talk about how, how our work life and life in general is, is dependent on, isn't so dependent on the winds that we face, but how we set our sails. Yeah. I mean, you're going to make me cry talking about this because it's a true story. So I, um, I didn't grow up in a wealthy family <laughs> and I went to a school um, that actually had a, a lot of white middle class kids in South Africa. And, you know, they're, they're pretty well off given we grew up during apartheid. Uh, if anyone is not familiar with South African history. Um, so, you know, it, it was tough, like, being being that kid. And, and every day my dad would drop me off in the Cabal, which is this massive truck that literally it was this monstrosity covered in paint, covered in ladders. My dad's a builder. And there's black smoke coming out of it because the exhaust pipe's on the ceiling of the truck. So it's literally like a flag to everybody that I'm arriving to school. And you would have to put your arm out of the window to open the door. (laughs) (laughs) My dad is brutal, right? He just was like, nope. You know, he believes in you finding your belonging just as you are. So he would out of, you know, just to teach me this lesson, I'm so grateful for it would pull up outside that school, the front gate, right? And it's literally a playground where all the kids could see. And he would stop the truck right there. And it's massive. It's a massive beast of a truck. And I would have to climb down this truck to get out. And then the engine would break. And then he would pull the seat up and get me to help him, like, get the whole thing going. And everybody would be watching. I remember dying. And Miss Anderson, the headmistress, would always say to me every morning she stood there on the step she had a little dog next to her she's just this force to be reckoned with and she would watch all of this and she'd very quietly say as I walk past she'd just say head up king and like even saying now it makes me emotional because that was her reminder like no matter what man that's not who you are and then on my very last day of school gosh I'm emotional I went to her to say goodbye and um, she said oh I have something for you and she pulled out that poem by Ella Wheeler Wilcox. It's called The Winds of Fate, and it's in the back of the book. And basically the poem talks about the importance of setting your own sail on the voyage of life. 
and not having the direction you take in life be determined by the winds of fate. And I think right now is where we're at in the world of work. Never has that message been more important. We have AI, we have automation, we have workplaces that are scrambling to cope, we have changing structures, we have all the stresses of diversification of customers, of people we're working with, of globalizing, all of these changes coming at a time where people feel lost, where they feel broken, you know, workplaces are broken, our relationships with workplaces are broken. And I think what that poem for me says is even amongst that you can carve out your own path in a workplace a path with heart a path where we care about each other a path where we recognize you know it doesn't have to be me or you it can be all of us advancing and finding fulfillment at work i love that i just love that so much thank you thank you for sharing that i found that really touching as well uh your personal stories in the book are really just abruptly personal i think you just did a fantastic job of sharing you know, your real self. Thank you for doing that. And we can't really end a Behavioral Grooves conversation without talking about what kind of music you might take with you if you've spent a year on a desert island. So we have to, <laughs> we have to end on a happy note about what two musical artists would you, would you take with you? By the way, not just the person, I mean, but their catalog of work. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So look, I think, you know, I should probably share, I am a massive jazz fan. I get that from my dad. So I love like anything, Louis Armstrong, Alice Fitzgerald, um, Chet Baker, like anything, any jazz. I just absolutely love it. I go to all the amazing sort of jazz um, cafes and in New York, you know, the Village Vanguard here in the UK, Ronnie Scott's. Just um, really love jazz, and I feel like jazz almost has a life of its own, and it's something you could definitely listen to on a desert island over and over again. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I'm, I'm a jazz fan. Uh, that and coffee, if we had both of those. <laughs> <laughs> jazz and coffee. Would Leonard Cohen be be one of your your go tos? Also, would would a catalog of? Oh yes, yeah, sorry. Uh, at least I forget Lennon Cohen. Yes, um, we we'll definitely add Lennon Cohen. And we'll just have jazz as one broad category and then Lennon Cohen. And um, um, the other, yeah. I think that's, oh, a pretty, I love it. that's a pretty great mix, actually. I, I thought a lot about jazz when I was reading the book because ambiguity, for, like for me, jazz is ambiguity. Jazz is the uncertainty of, of having uh, a loose structure but not enough structure to know exactly what's going to happen when. And it, it requires the music, musicians to be reading the air, to be reading each other, to be keeping eye contact and listening and being aware. And so I, I, I think that that's the book just made a lot of sense to me. Let me just put it that way. For me. You know what? I should have put that in the book. You should have written that. I should have put that in the book. That is, exactly <laughs> what, that is what jazz musicians do, though. That's It's an unfolding and the whole time they're looking at each other for cues. That's exactly right. Yeah. Then they're reading the air. I mean, literally reading the air. All great musicians, right? Like you watch any of the best bands. That's that's what they're doing. Yeah, um, we live like yeah. that's what they're doing. If they're yeah. actually playing, I mean, if they're just automatons, you know, uh, and the you know that's why there's a conductor of a, of a symphony. Everybody's got the sheet music in front of them, but they're still looking for that downbeat. They're still looking for is this the right pace? And I I, I kind of love that about music, but. Michelle King, it is an absolute pleasure to have you as a guest on Behavior Group. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you both so much. Thank you.
Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I share ideas on what we learned from our discussion with Michelle, have a free-flowing conversation, and groove on whatever else comes into our working brains. Okay, I was that totally threw me. I was not expecting the working brains coming out. Like, well, how that's to make because work our brains work. don't normally work, right? So <laughs> well, ours don't. <laughs> I know yours and mine. We don't have working brains. We have kind of half lazy functioning brains. brains. You know, they're they definitely don't work well. So I like the lazy brain. I'm just gonna say <laughs> I like having a lazy brain. I think it's yeah. Better. You know, it it served us. It's it's gotten us through life all right. All right. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, Kurt, let's start with the the first salient point for you. What came out uh, of of our discussion with Michelle that you want to talk about? Reading the air. Oh, I, <laughs> all right. So we're not going to do that, that, that silly kind of thing. But reading the air, I think this idea of making sure that we pay attention to what's going on. Pay attention to what's not being said, paying attention to the energy in the room. Those are really key. And I think, and again, I mentioned this in in the interview, you know, I've run into organizations where I'm working with executives and they're saying, people don't have the skill set. They just, they're kind of blind to it. It's interesting, isn't it? But that here we are, this is a totally natural human thing. Right. This is so super like normal. And yet we somehow suspend that when we get up and go to work. And it, it doesn't seem reasonable why we should. And by the way, the like for me, I like this idea that Michelle emphasized that it's available in like all cultures. Right. right. Read the air, read the room, read between the lines, read the unwritten rule. Like this is a universal thing. And yet it somehow gets suspended in the workplace that and it doesn't need to be. So I also think that there's some value in not just paying attention to how your boss, you know, like, you know, your boss is an important part of the story, but uh, how does your boss relate to teammates and colleagues, like inside and outside of your work group? How, you know, what, what are the kinds of words that your boss uses to talk about people that you work with? Yeah. You know, read that, start to pay attention to that stuff. Do you think there's a generational thing with this? Is, is it more common in people who are newer into the workplace than others? I don't know. I don't, I don't have enough, I, I don't have enough data that comes to mind or observations to really make a, a, a thought either way. Kurt, do you, do you have a feel for this? I don't know, but I think there is something about just being in a corporate world. Now, I have been out of real corporate world for a long time on my own, yeah, you know. But but let's just say that the vast majority of your clients are very large organizations. Yes, yes, They're they are. Companies. And then we're working with executives and middle-level executives in there. And the ones that I see being successful are the ones that do this innately. It's this idea of like, sometimes, for instance, I'll give you an example of when working with a client who had was at a past company and now he's at a new company and he's bringing us in and he goes, Kurt, we want to do this, but I have to set the organization up. It's understanding that we can't just go in and kind of bully our way into yeah. getting this program in place. He has to set the scene, has to 
has to grease the wheels, has to whatever other, you know. Uh, because that's not, not only is that part of the human condition, but that's part of that culture, right? It's I mean, part he's, of the culture. It's part of reading the air. It's part of this mm-hmm. idea of knowing that we can't just come in and say, hey, we have to change the incentive culture around here and we have to move it from this to this. And we have to bring in some of this behavioral science stuff, Kurt, that you're working on. We have to make sure that we get the executives to realize that there is that need. And so it's 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 an element of not just reading what's going on in the room right now, but also like understanding the organization as you talk about this idea of doing that. And those are the people that when I work with them, those people who have that innate ability not to just be a bull in a china shop, but to be able to come in and understand some of the politics, and I'm using air quotes there, within the organization and knowing how to play the game, it helps them in their careers, I think. Well, I would also say that playing the game is actually just being a part of the culture. Yeah. To some degree, it's actually just just finding a way to fit in. And and maybe the, the, the flip side of the attention, paying attention coin is being intentional. Oh, I love that. Right? Uh, that, that if we have some intention about what we want to do, like w- what I want to accomplish in my job, for me, for the organization, I think that those things matter. And will those, of course, our intentions end up driving our focus and our attention and all those kinds of things. I think that there's a lot of downstream effects of intentionality that can yeah. benefit us as well. So there was a there was a newsletter I got the other day that I thought just fit this perfect. Uh, Ozan Varal, who wrote um, How to Think Like a Rocket Scientist, was this yeah, book. Right, and he, right. I, I get his weekly thing. And he talked about this, the myth of it doesn't hurt to ask. And basically what he says in this newsletter is he said, we've been kind of told, and this is goes back to, again, the story that I was talking about, I think, in, in with Michelle, is We've been told that it doesn't hurt to ask. The worst that can happen is people can say no. But that's not, that premise is wrong, he states. He states that no, there's actually, there can be other negative consequences from asking. Because if you ask too many times, you ask the wrong type of question, it implies something. And that person that you're asking it to makes judgments based upon that ask. So, yeah, I, I don't want to dissuade people from, you know, asking for things, but also, as you said, be intentional about that and understand that the ask itself does have consequences beyond just getting a no. Love that. Absolutely love that. So what else did you find? That uh, was my whole conversation. Now, now your turn. <laughs> I loved the comment that Michelle made when she said that 75% of your career depends on your emotional skills. I because think she understated that. I think I, it's like 90%, yeah. but no, that's me. Because we live in a hyper-social workplace. So let's just let that sink in for a minute. A hyper-social workplace. We spend most of it. We have acknowledged for years that we spend most of our waking hours with, with our business colleagues. And yet Michelle just put such a lovely pin on it by saying the hyper-social workplace and thinking about our emotional skills, these are relationships. Yeah, let's think about them as relationships. Yeah, yeah. That, that that's that's like my first big aha around that. Well, and and in any relationship, and this we talked about as well, is there will be ambiguity, and yeah. not everyone will be a hundred percent consistent a hundred percent of the time. We're not robots, right? Neither are the people that we work with. 
You're you're consistent all the time. <laughs> I'm consistently <laughs> bad. Yes, uh, I'm consistently inconsistent. How about that? Yeah, I think that you're really teeing something up that's really cool there. That that in the hypersocial workplace, there's place there's going to be variability, right? There's going to be a wave. There'll be some ups and downs, and that's okay you know, for us that, that we need to figure that out and learn to live with that. And it gets back to reading the room. It gets back to reading the room. It gets back though, to being able to read yourself or to understand your own Um, uh, lack of awareness, right? This, this, we have a natural position of lacking self-awareness, right? With the, the idea of overestimators or underestimators as, as Michelle talked about, uh, we have a hard time of being able to uh, look in a mirror and go, oh, Kurt, <laughs> you you are an overestimator and you always assume that people are agreeing with you and everything else. And it's hard for us to do that. So I thought this was maybe one of the coolest things that she had some really specific things to tee up about this. And I also think that this idea of addressing self-awareness is something that's been a, a big part of the way you think about the world as well, you know, (laughs) right. I mean, maybe it's me search, sorry, but, but like, like for me, when, when she started to like, you know, reflect, take 15 minutes every day, you know, write down, like she's big on write down. Don't just ruminate, but write down this stuff. And of course my mind went to brain shift no <laughs> to, to 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 the to the to the journal that you and ben created yeah well i think there's something there right this idea of we can get better understanding ourselves one is through asking others close confidence um friends to tell us what are the biases what what do i always do you know i always roll my eyes when people talk like this i always do this when x happens yeah but the other way is as she said is Take some time to write it down, reflect on it. And we put that into brain shift. I mean, we we really did try to build in reflection points. And actually, volume two is coming out. And we actually Woo! did some feedback that we built into volume two, which is about decision making. So r- chapter volume one was around habits and routines. Chapter or volume two focuses in on decision making. But we also put in a lot more reflection, like what did I do? What worked? What didn't work? How did I show up? All of those types of things into this, specifically around some of this helping us understand and identify our own biases that we have and be more self-aware. I, I love it. I, I I can't wait, actually. I haven't seen any of the the, the pre uh Stuff. He'll, yeah, get it. He'll get I'll it. He'll get it, man. I'll get but, it to you. Yeah. But this is, uh, I got to say this uh, about volume one, that it's so easy. It's so that the idea of pulling up a page is not a 20-minute commitment or a 30-minute commitment or an hour. It's five to seven minutes tops. Like I can get through it quickly and it helps orient me towards my day. Yeah. So I, I, I've used, I use it at the beginning of the day and, <laughs> and I like that about it. So. So one of the other pieces I think is important, and we talked about this prior to going on air, is this idea that, all right, so we have this lack of self-awareness. We're not necessarily really good at understanding our own biases, that we may not be able to read the room or read the air as much as we want to, but that we ought to go into this 
not scared that we have to get it 100% right, that we need to adopt, uh, Annie Duke says, adopt the archer's mindset, is that first we just have to get to the target, right? right Before right, we worry about right. getting to the bullseye, we have to worry about, let's just get the arrow so that it sticks in the target somehow. And then we can start honing in and getting closer and closer to the bullseye. And, so, and it takes practice. It takes practice. It takes intention going back Uh, to what you said at the beginning. All right. All right, Tim. I think uh, Michelle shared a ton of great ideas. We have another three pages of percentages and studies that we could talk about, but (laughs) I don't know. I think this is probably the salient points, at least for me. What do you think? Uh, Same, same. I want Grubers to take away just a couple of things from our conversation. First, Start by assuming that you don't have a great grasp on your self-awareness. What? And you need, what? <laughs> and you need, yes, and that you need to develop it. So sit down and reflect and write for a few minutes every day. That, that's my first thing. The second thing that I, I, I want to leave Groovers with is you can improve your self-awareness at any time during your career. So this message isn't just for somebody who's just getting started in their career. How about you, Kurt? What do you want to leave Groovers with? Pay attention to the things that aren't said. Pay attention to the energy in the room. Be adept at trying to understand what is going on that isn't being spoken about. Uh, Yeah, Because those are the things I think that I, I like. And to sum up, you know, all our conversation and grooving session, it really is just with this. It's Read the air. <laughs> I brought that back in. I'm sorry. I, I'm glad you did. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to, again, it's 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 going in. You have to in, figure out what's going on informally in the organization. Develop uh, attention for that informal organization, the informal connections. What do we have to do is going back to what I talked about is like, understanding you can't just be a bull in the china shop you have to sometimes figure out and and frame things in a way you have to uh get people to move their position without asking them to do something and before you do the ask it's all of cialdini's influence it's all of the other facets that we come about so yeah yeah absolutely cool i i dig that and uh, and we hope that you uh listeners have enjoyed our conversation with michelle as well as our grooming session. And because of your enjoyment, we hope that you'll leave us a quick rating or a short review, or even better, even better, you'll share this episode with a friend or colleague who could use a nudge in their own career and understand how work works. Yeah. And we hope that you make the most of it and use it this week to go out and find your groove.